Paul says, finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality and that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. And Father, as you have given us your Holy Spirit, and as your Spirit has inspired these very words on the page in front of us this morning, we pray that as he was the author of these words, that now he would be our instructor and our teacher. And Lord, every thought and intent and reason behind why you inspired these things would be all that we could receive for our lives personally and directly this morning in this hour. Lord, we ask, prepare us, give us an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church through this portion of your word. Father, I pray for myself, for love and humility, Lord, and the ability to communicate your heart even through this, Lord, very sensitive portion of your word. We pray that your truth would set us free and help us, Lord, as the church and as individual Christians and in this culture in which we live in this day. And we ask these things in your blessing on your word in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, is the way today that you are living out your life on this earth pleasing God? I think it'd be very fair to say that that is something really that we are expected to do as followers of Jesus Christ. And really, as you can see, beginning in the first verse there, that is what our text is addressing. It's addressing the issue, Paul says, of how we ought to walk and to please God. And particularly how we ought to please God in this section regarding the area of refraining from sexual sin. You notice Paul says there, if you can look with me again back in the first verse, finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God for you know, the idea is already, what the commandments we gave you, past tense, through the Lord Jesus. So again, as we saw at the close of the third chapter, Paul again in this book that the Holy Spirit has given to us as Christians, thematically about, in many ways it seems, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Paul again at the end of the third chapter closed out speaking of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's in light of that that Paul now, by the Spirit, is strongly appealing to us as Christians, to the Thessalonians he's writing to, 
to keep growing, to keep moving forward in our desire for and the practice of living a life that is pleasing to God. You see his language there in our text. Paul says, look, you've already received from us. In other words, the things that he's saying in this particular section, we know Paul saying, look, I'm reiterating things I've already spoken to you about when I was there planning the church and teaching initially said things you've already past tense received from us. I just want to remind you of those things. I just want to challenge you once again, he says, how you ought to walk and to please God. Notice the spiritual life as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, first of all, from our text, we're told, is pictured as a walk. We see this all throughout the New Testament. It's a metaphor, a picture of the spiritual life. A walk is pictured as something of actively taking forward steps, heading in a specific direction. It's a purposeful intention, a purposeful effort to make progress, to pursue a destination. Uh, oftentimes people will take a walk together. My wife and I do this on occasion. And when you walk together as two people, you have to head in the same direction. You have to keep pace with one another if you're going to walk together. And the Bible uses this analogy to describe our relationship with God or the spiritual life. You read from Old Testament to New Testament things like Enoch walked with God. We read Noah walked with God. In Micah chapter 6, we have that familiar verse, He has shown thee, O man, already what is good and what the Lord requires of thee, that you do justly, that you love mercy, and that you walk humbly with your God. When we come into the New Testament, it's a common analogy used again and again. We read Paul say, walk worthy of the calling that you've received as a Christian to walk worthy of the Lord. So the Christian life is pictured as an experience that involves continual forward progress and a walk together with God. And in light of that analogy, good thing to ask this morning very simply is how is your walk spiritually? How is your walk spiritually? Well, notice Paul then also indicates to us that the intention of a spiritual walk, the intention of the spiritual life, he says as well there, verse 1, notice at the end he says, is to please God. That's the intention of the spiritual life, is to please God, is to make choices, to live and to act in a way which seeks for and obtains God's approval or God's acceptance, to live in a way that would, in a sense, bring about pleasure to God that would cause God to be pleased with the way in which we live. That's to be the aim or the goal. The aim or the goal of our lives is not to seek first and foremost to please ourselves. That's how we lived before we knew God. That's the natural way to live, to live in a way that you please yourself. Whatever pleases you, that's what you pursue. Or together with that, maybe to live for the pleasure of someone else. You're dominated by wanting to please someone else. But liberation and truth and knowing God brings us to a place where we understand, no, the chief aspiration of life is to live in a way that I please God. To make my decisions, my choices, to speak in the way that I speak, to act in the way I act that brings pleasure to God. So a good way to evaluate yourself is to ask, is the way that you are currently living, is that pleasing God? Is what you are involved in, or the things that you're doing, and not just here in front of other Christians, is what you're doing, what you're involved in, in your home, 
in your private life, in your personal life, in your place of business and employment, in your school, is how you're behaving, pleasing God. Because that's what the Lord wants, that we would live in a way, act in a way, and that our measure of evaluating what we do and what we don't do is, is this pleasing to God? Is the way we're living as a couple pleasing to God? Is the way I'm conducting myself as a man pleasing to God? Is the way I just spoke to that person pleasing to God? Are the practices of my business or the habits of my life, are they pleasing to God? Because that is to be not only how we measure our lives, but that's to be our motivation is that we want to please God. Lord, I want to please you. What would please you? And that would be our pursuit. In fact... Jesus modeled that in his earthly life. If you remember, Jesus in John chapter 8 said this. He said, the Father has not left me alone. He said, for I always do those things that please him. Again, as Christians, we say that Christ is in us. That the spirit of Jesus now lives inside of us. And the life of Jesus, he said of his own life, he said, I always do those things that please my father. So that tells me that the spirit of Christ within me, if I claim to be a Christian, should desire, if I'm yielding to it, to want to please God. Remember many times throughout Jesus' life, a few occasions, God spoke directly from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. What did he say? In whom I am well pleased. And the father said that regarding Jesus. Listen, he said that at times of Jesus' life before he ever did a miracle, before he ever taught a Bible study, before he ever cast out a demon or did something miraculous. Or, and, and so often we think that pleasing God and sometimes we exchange, why well, did this for God? And sometimes I think God is saying, look, well, rather than you doing that for me, I would much prefer if you would just live a life, maybe in obscurity, in the privacy of your own life, that would be pleasing to me. Again, Jesus heard that from the Father. At that point in life, there was no public ministry the first time he heard that. But he had lived as a man, being honest in his practices, probably as a carpenter with his father, and the way he lived his life morally and personally in relationship, where the Father said, I'm so pleased with your life. I'm pleased with your life because those are the things that are chief of importance to God's heart. Paul, in light of the return of Jesus and standing one day to give account in 2 Corinthians 5 says, therefore we make it our aim to be well-pleasing to him. So here we see this, that God wants us to walk in a way that pleases him. Well, the way we know how we ought to walk and please God is to know, Paul says, verse 2, what his commandments say. If we know what his commandments say and we then adhere and submit to them and how we live, well, then we can know how to walk and please God. He says, verse 2, you know what commandments we gave you when we were with you through the Lord Jesus. That term Paul uses there, commandments, it's actually a rare term in the Greek language. It doesn't show up many times in the New Testament. It's a term commandments that speaks specifically in a military sense of orders being handed down from a superior officer in regards to what they were or weren't to engage in. Uh, interesting, in 2 Timothy 2, Paul there says, no one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Now, with this, again, analogy in mind, the commanding officer, Paul wants to be very evident here, Paul wasn't the commanding officer. Sometimes people have that perspective to a spiritual leader. They're the commanding officer. No, Paul realized, look, I'm just the spiritual sergeant here, and I'm just passing down the, if you would, the, the commands of the captain of our faith, who Paul says in verse 2 is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Paul says, look, I'm just a sergeant serving with you. All I'm doing is receiving the commands from the superior and passing them along to you. But those commands carry his authority. Jesus gave these commands. Jesus gave these instructions regarding how to follow and to please God. So Paul's point here in verses 1 and 2 is he's trying to say, look, we're not trying to tell you something new about how to live holy or how to live life in a way that would please God. Rather, in light of the temptations that Paul knew they were facing there in Thessalonica and in light of the culture that they were in, which is extremely immoral, he's challenging them here in verse 1 and 2 to continue pursuing what they already knew in regards to how to walk and how to please God. You see why he says there in verse 1, he says, we urge and exhort you that you do these things, he just says, abounding more and more. So Paul says, look, I'm not trying to give you new information, but he says, I am challenging you, I am urging you because I know the pressure of the culture and I know the temptations that are all around you, that what you already know is right, that you would pursue it more that you would adhere to it more strongly and be serious about living it out continuously. Again, one man said this regarding holiness. He said, practical holiness is a process, not an achievement. And that's a great reminder that we should always be pursuing practical holiness in how we live out our lives. And one of the best ways and greatest safeguards as a believer to keep from what we call backsliding is to just keep moving forward to just keep walking forward, seeking to please God and making progress spiritually. Well, Paul now in verse 3 begins to get specific regarding a particular area, one particular area, where we can live in a way and walk that is pleasing to God. He says, verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain, he says, from sexual immorality. So one clear aspect of the will of God he says, is to live in a way that avoids particular forms of sexual sin. Notice he begins verse 3 there in our text. He says, for this is the will of God. Now, isn't it interesting how oftentimes, especially once we become Christians, people who are believers are always asking, right? They're always saying, what's God's will for my life? That's one of those questions you never asked until you became Christian. But as soon as you become a Christian, that's like one of the top asked and contemplated and considered things. Christians are always saying, oh, I'm praying for God's will for my life. You know, Pastor Tony, can you help me? I'm trying to understand God's will. What's God's will for my life? Well, well, check this out, please. Here is one of a few occasions in Scripture where it's directly and specifically stated, this is God's will for your life. <laughs> Answer. There's one answer to that question we all ask. I'd say it therefore is wise to pay attention and take special heed to what's said here because would you agree it's rather kind of silly in a sense to ask and to seek what the unrevealed things of God's will are for our lives if we're going to just ignore what's directly stated that is God's will for our life. I would say this. I think the more we directly obey the revealed will of God found in Scripture, here's one case in point, and really the Scripture as a whole, the more we obey the directly revealed will of God, 
the better condition I'm going to be in spiritually to discern and understand what the unrevealed things of God's will may be for my life in a specific sense, where I'm to live, you know, what I'm to do, you know, who you're to marry, what job you're to take, and should you do this instead of doing that? Those are the unrevealed things. And I think the more we obey the clearly revealed things, there's light to better understand the areas of the unrevealed things of specific life aspects of God's will for you personally as a believer. So what do we mean when we use the term the will of God? Well, here, very clearly, the will of God, the language infers, you could say, the choice of God. When you say the will of God, you could say the, the purpose of God. It's what God has chosen for your life. It's what God has purposed for your life. So when we talk about the will of God, look, we're not talking about God's preference. We're not talking about, well, this is God's preference for your life. I mean, he'd really prefer if you would do that with your life. I and mean, we know that when we ask, because a lot of times in sincerity as a Christian, we're saying, God, I want to know your will for my life about this job or this ministry or marrying this person. God, I want to know your will for my... We're, we're not saying, God, what's your preference? We're saying, God, I want to know what have you chosen for me? What's your plan? What's your purpose? So when we talk about the will of God, we're talking about what God's chosen, what God has purposed and what God has intended as our creator and as our Lord. And he says part of that is, verse 3, your sanctification. That word sanctification sometimes translated holy. It's a term that speaks of being set apart for a unique and a specific purpose. And probably in Paul's mind here is the imagery of the vessels that were used in the tabernacle and the temple in that day, the pitchers and the golden you know, and, and silver implements that they used. And those implements, they were sanctified. Those vessels, they were set apart for God's specific purposes. You could not use the vessels of the tabernacle or temple in the same way that you used ordinary vessels. They were unique. They were set apart for God's purpose. You were not to use or abuse those vessels in the way that other vessels were used in just ordinary ways in the society. They were set apart for God's special purposes. So he says the will of God his choice, his purpose for you is your sanctification. In other words, Paul's trying to say that your life, that my life be set apart for its intended purpose, for its highest purpose and not abused or used in a lower or an inferior way that it was not intended to be used for, despite how other people may be using their lives in the world among an immoral culture that we all live in, that we would live in a way that is set apart from how the rest of the world is conducting themselves, that we would live in a way where we use our life as God intends, regardless of the pressures, regardless of the patterns of everybody else around us. And the reason is, is that we realize what God intends and what God's chosen for our lives. We understand, say, I want what God's chosen for my life and what God's chosen for my life is, is my sanctification, that I would be set apart, especially in relation to the area of sexual purity and sexual sin. And you embrace that Listen, this morning, if no one's told you in a while, can I remind you, your life is special. It's special. You're not here by accident. God created you. God designed you. He knit you together, the Bible says, in your mother's womb and, and has a wonderful plan for your life and great love for you. 
And, and because of that, you should realize God knows what is going to be best and most wonderful for the experience of your life. And on top of that, as a believer, those who claim to follow Jesus, the Bible says our lives were even bought back at a great price and cost that was spent to make us belong to God, which means we exclusively belong to God now because we were purchased and redeemed by Christ. Paul says in relation to the area of sexual sin in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have from God, and he says, and you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, in light of that, he says, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which is God's. So as we choose to have the, and I'm going to say this, courage to live set apart in a way that God's chosen for us, that pleases God. That pleases God when you can exercise the fortitude and the strength internally to say, yes, it's hard. And yes, all of my friends are doing this. And yes, that's the pattern of the world. And yes, the people that are being applauded and put on television are people who are confused about their gender and they get all the news in the press to say, but you know what? I know that's wrong. And I have the courage to say, you know what? If no one else will be pleased with what I believe or how I live, I'll take the pleasure of God. And I will please God by living set apart and choosing to not, in a sense, cower under the pressure and the difficulty of those things. We can bring great pleasure to the heart of God in this area. Tremendous pleasure. Look, as we go forward in this text, I need to say it is important to understand the moral climate and culture even in that day where Paul was writing from Corinth as he was writing this letter, as well as there in the city of Thessalonica where this letter was being sent to the church there, the ways of living in that society were dominated by Roman and Greek culture. And we know historically that those were both extremely immoral cultures filled with perversity, extremely loose sexual morals without any boundaries or restraint on what was practiced sexually. Let me read to you a quote as, as, as stark as it sounds, please listen to it. Describing the Greek culture, Demosthenes said this. Listen. He said, we keep prostitutes for pleasure. We keep mistresses for the day-to-day -day needs of the body. And we keep wives for the begetting of children and for the faithful guardianship of our homes. Look, in that Greek culture, as long as a man supported his wife and family... There was no shame whatsoever in society for extramarital sexual activity. Many of the worship practices in that culture and day in which Paul was writing and these believers were living, many of the worship practices of the other gods and goddesses involved sexual practices as a part of the worship system, as a part of the worship rites. We know in the Roman culture, the Romans were notorious, the men were in the Roman culture, for engaging in homosexual activity. And they particularly preferred young men between 12 and 20 years old. Look, this was the culture in that day. The mindset of the culture was that the sexual drive was not meant to be channeled. The sexual drive was meant to be satisfied and indulged however and whenever you preferred. 
That was the mindset of that culture. To say sexual activity in every form was freely practiced and accepted is an understatement. But can I ask you, by way of application, does not things start to sound familiar as you look at our day and age? And you begin to realize that it seems the mindset of our culture in this day and age is that the sexual drive is not meant to be channeled anymore. It's just meant to be satisfied and indulged whenever and however you please and prefer. And whatever is right in your eyes and whatever is preferable to your needs or bodily appetites, then you should just cast restraint aside and indulge yourself. It's what's endorsed. It's what's advertised. It's what's promoted. It's what's applauded. It's what's encouraged in our culture today. And it is destroying a culture. Keep in mind, the Roman culture, the Roman Empire was never conquered. It fell apart internally because of its moral condition. It fell apart from within. They were the most powerful culture, probably one of the strongest military empires in world history, and nobody conquered them. They conquered themselves because the moral fiber work fell apart because of the perversity, and in many of the same ways, look, amidst that culture and amidst our culture, God was calling them, the Thessalonian believers, and God is calling you and I today as believers to live a life set apart and separated from participating in sexual sin and sexual immorality and to live according to his will and design ahead. What does that look like in regards to our sexual drive? Paul says, verse 3 there, important statement that you should abstain from sexual immorality. That word that Paul uses there, sexual immorality, in the Greek, it's actually the term pornea. Sound familiar? It's where we've developed the English word pornography. That word pornea in the Greek language that was used was a broad term that encompassed or included all forms of inappropriate and, and unacceptable sexual activity outside the boundaries of a man and a woman in a marriage relationship. It was a broad term to refer to sexual activity. So it encompassed sexual activity prior to marriage or sexual activity outside of the bounds of marriage that two people would engage in. It referred and encompassed adultery, sexual activity with someone who's not your spouse or sexual activity with another person's spouse. It also was a term at times used to encompass homosexual activity or sexual activity with someone of the same sex. So as Paul uses this term, he's referring to various forms in a broad sense of sexual sin. And why are they sexual sin? Because they're outside of the boundaries, outside of the guidelines that God gave for the sexual expression, for sexual practice. Look, ladies and gentlemen, God's not a prude. Okay, I remind you, God created sex. A lot of times our world and culture has forgotten that. We turn to Dr. Phil and Dr. Ruth and everybody else. How about God? He created it. He designed it. God created the sex drive. And let me go further, and I don't mean this to be crass. God created it to be pleasurable. He didn't have to. God created God's not a prude when it comes to this area. It's an area where as Christians, we are deceiving ourselves and robbing ourselves if we're afraid to want to involve God, pray about, and look at God's truth and God's word in regards to what his intention is. It's a gift of God. It's a wonderful thing. 
It's been polluted by satanic deception and the carnality and sinfulness of humanity. But God gave boundaries and rules for the proper and appropriate expression of sexual activity. God designed a boundary and to violate those boundaries then in any way is sexual sin from God's perspective, no matter what the media says. No matter what any politician says, even our president says. Therefore, God says here, verse 3, that we must abstain from sexual immorality. That word abstain means to hold oneself off, to refrain, or to keep back from. We hear this term abstinence. Praise God that there are still some programs that go around in school systems and different places and teach young people abstinence. Again, can I remind you, abstinence is God's idea. It's not just a, a, a person who's interested in the health of a young kid. It, it, that was God's idea right there. Abstain. It's in God's word. Abstinence was God's idea. Why? Because God loves you. Because God loves us. Because God loves the lives of people and he knows what's best for us. And can I say this? Abstaining indicates that there is the presence of sexual desire. When we develop to a certain stage... God has wired that these chemicals release in our bodies called hormones. That's why a young person begins to go through puberty experiences and desires are awakened. And again, God created these things. They're not wrong in and of themselves. We don't want to make sex taboo in a weird way that then we're afraid to even address it with our children, talk to them about it. Look, we need to help our young people discover the truth among all the lies. And to bury our head in the sand and act like God's approved is not going to help our culture. To explain it from God's perspective and help them understand that these things exist, abstinence indicates the presence of sexual desire and even the opportunity to fulfill it and satisfy it, but yet realizing the desire and the opportunity does not automatically indicate that it's acceptable to indulge it. It doesn't mean just because the desire is there, the appetite is there, and the opportunity to fulfill it is there that it's appropriate to then engage sexually. Let me give, again, a, a ridiculous but somewhat realistic metaphor. If, if I'm really hungry, i got a hunger drive. And let's say I'm really hungry. i got a desire. And so I'm so hungry, but there's no food available, but anything would be good. Would it be appropriate if I just came up and started chewing on your flesh on your arm? I'm hungry, man. i got a desire. There's an opportunity. Your arm's exposed. You say, no. Yes, you have a hunger drive, but you need to learn to control your hunger drive. You need to hold yourself off. That's not an appropriate way to exercise your drive. That's inappropriate. It's not acceptable. And see, in the same way, the sexual desire has been given by God, but it's to be channeled as God intends within the boundaries God's prescribed. And we're responsible to hold ourselves off from participating in sexual expression and to refrain from exercising the sexual appetite in a wrong way, in a way that's inappropriate, which means a few things. This morning, if you're a single person, whether you're an older single person or whether you're a younger single person, God's will, God's command, verse 3 says, is that you stay out of bed unless you're going there alone. Out of bed. That there should not be sexual activity and sexual things taking place until a marriage relationship has been established and committed to according to God's boundaries and God's desire. 
That's God's will for your life. If you're married, that means this morning you should be finding complete sexual fulfillment in your spouse alone. I want you to listen to God's words from Proverbs 5. They're stark but honest. It says, Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving doe and graceful deer, let her breasts satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. Yeah, that's in the Bible. Imagine that. It's in the Bible. Why? Because God's not a prudent. God says, let her. That is your fountain of satisfaction. You learn how to be satisfied within the confines of the marriage partner that God has given to you. God instructs that. He says that's the design. That's the best way. And if you're here this morning as well, God's will is that you abstain from sexual immorality as well. That if you're here and you're struggling with homosexual desire, If you're struggling with homosexual desire, that means you must recognize simply that that's not according to God's design. And therefore, those desires must be abstained from that you don't practice them and you don't carry them out. It is not a sin to struggle with those desires. It is sin to practice those desires. Look, everybody struggles to some extent with lust and other desires. It's the carrying out of those things. Again, if I could illustrate... Picture sex, by way of illustration, sex is like fire. It's like fire. And fire, if it's kept within the boundaries of a fireplace, right? It's a wonderful thing. That's the proper boundaries for it. It it, it creates light. It creates warmth. Fire in a fireplace can be a productive thing. It can be an enjoyable thing. It can be a wonderful thing used for many different wonderful purposes. But if you take that same fire two feet outside the fireplace and light it up right in the middle of your living room floor on the carpet, now all of a sudden that same fire outside of those boundaries is dangerous, destructive, and it can be deadly. Deadly. And the same way with the sexual expression. Interesting, sexual sin is the one sin the Bible even identifies as self-destructive. Listen to what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 6, remember that chapter? Here he says this, Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. The one sin the Bible holds out and says this sin is an utterly self-destructive sin is the area of sexual immorality because of the destruction it brings, the damage it brings about, the baggage, the scars, the guilt, the regret, not even describing all the other physical effects that can come a disease and other things we can harm and destroy our bodies. Now, regarding the command to abstain from sexual morality, Paul then says in the fourth verse that each of you, in light of abstaining, should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and in honor. Here, the Bible is commanding that each of us are personally responsible to learn how to exercise self-control over our bodily passions, over our appetites, And that's important to see because, again, let's be very honest, oftentimes the natural reasoning or the dispute in relation to abstaining from sexual expression is, look, I mean, come on, that's just not possible. I mean, that's just not realistic. I mean, the desires and drives, man, they're just too strong. I have to. God says, no, you don't. No, you don't. Well, man, come on, it's like a hunger drive. Listen, I understand if you don't eat, you'll die. 
You can live the rest of your life and never have sex. You won't die. You may not be happy, but you won't die. It's not the same as the hunger drive. So God says here, yes, it is a desire. Yes, it is a drive. But God says you can have self-control. In fact, he says here, rather, look at the text, verse 4. He says, you should know how to possess your own vessel in sanctification and in honor. A vessel is a reference to the physical body. The Bible refers to our bodies in Scripture as vessels to use for, to experience this natural world. And our human vessels are intended to be filled with God's Spirit and under the influence and the control of God's Spirit. So please take note that God states we're each responsible and accountable to learn how to exercise this thing we talk about called self control over bodily appetites our personal stewardship is to manage the use of our body in an honorable way particularly as it pertains to sexual activity one translation renders verse 4 every one of you must learn to gain mastery over his own body which means this despite what others do and I know it's hard but despite what others do and despite how at times what you may be thinking and how you can rationalize or justify something in your mind. Despite how strongly you may be feeling and the power of, you know, of arousal and all of the things, that self-control is possible. Because God says it right here in His Word and the Bible says God cannot lie. It doesn't say God won't lie, it says He cannot lie. And God here says that we can learn how to manage and rule our sexual drive properly. I know lust is a powerful force, but it is not something that cannot be mastered with God's help and with God's grace and spirit assisting us. First Peter 2 says, abstain from the fleshly lust which war against your soul. In other words, it's a battle that can be won. It can be won. Paul says in Romans 6.12, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. He says, don't let it reign. Don't let it reign that you obey it. And of course, this familiar verse regarding temptation, 1 Corinthians 10.13, we couldn't not think of that. Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you except as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you are able to bear it. Great verse to be reminded of when we are tempted to justify or excuse impure, inappropriate sexual behavior, that we can have self-control with God's help. Let me give to you just a few practical suggestions in regards to helping with self-control. The first I would say is this. Don't ever trust yourself. Ever. Don't ever trust yourself. Don't ever put yourself in a position, a circumstance, a situation where you give or provide any opportunity to fail in this area. Don't trust yourself. Purposely believe that you're the next Judas Iscariot. Just believe it. Come to grips with the reality of your potential. Don't ever trust yourself in this area. Whether that's in relation to what it involves or the things you look at on your screen or who you interact with or who you're getting a little too friendly with vocationally or friendships or being with people alone, do not ever trust yourself. It'll really help with self-control. Secondly, I would say this. Don't ever feed the appetite. 
because it won't satisfy it. See, when we're hungry, we feed the appetite. It seems like it subdues it. It doesn't work that way with sexual desire. If you feed the appetite, if I just feed it, if I just let it have what it wants just in this moment and the impulse, look, that will throw gas on the fire. It won't subdue the appetite. It'll throw gas on the fire and it will burn more out of control. Thirdly, I'd say this, listen to the Holy Spirit's warnings and respond quickly when the conviction of the Spirit comes in relation to those things. And fourthly, I would say this, maintain your fellowship with God. Maintain your fellowship with God because the Bible says part of the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience. What's the end of it? Self-control. Oh God, I need more self-control. Maintain your fellowship with God and the fruit of the Spirit of just walking with God and being in fellowship with God will help produce His self-control in your life. And also, I think our next verse indicates to us this, don't draw your moral standards from the world's patterns. Look what Paul says there. Learn how to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor. Then he says, verse 5, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. So he's saying we're not to behave in the passion of lust like those who don't know God. The point he's trying to drive home is the reason many of the Gentile pagan world behave like animals in heat. The reason why they live according to the urges of their passions and their lusts, Paul's trying to say is because they don't know God. Christian, he's trying to say they don't know God. So therefore, because they don't know God, we should never use their lifestyle or practices as our comparison or as what we use as a standard to judge what's acceptable for us. They're not using the same moral compass. They're not using any moral compass. They're using the drive of their appetites and passions and lusts. That's what governs them. They're not governed by a sense of accountability to God and what God wants for their life. The unsaved are living according to the lower plane. They only know how to please themselves. That's all any of us understand or desire and they don't have the power of God's spirit to live differently. So if we're ever looking at the world as our standard, please hear this. If we look to the world as our standards and our comparison of what is and isn't acceptable, we're, we're courting self-deception. Self-deception in every way. Why? Because they don't know God. And if we compare ourselves with what the world is doing, that will lead to compromise reasoning and making concessions morally. Because here's how it happens. Well, I mean, compared to what everybody else is doing, I mean, compared to what most people in my school do, compared to what my other friends, I mean, compared to what my coworker does or what he watches or what he's involved in, I mean, compared to that, I'm only bad idea. He says here, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles because they don't know God. And let me say this too. We should never wrongly look at the practices of the world and the unsaved world in envy, thinking we're missing something. We should look at those who don't know God in remorse because we realize the accompanying self-destructive baggage and scars and regrets that they are going to bring into their life by living in a way apart from God. And we should look at it from a proper perspective. Never take your standards from society. Take your standards from Scripture. That's what Paul's saying. From the Word of God that's been given. Now, continuing regarding abstaining from sexual morality, he now in these closing verses cites a few additional reasons why sexual sin should be avoided. The first one in verse 6 he points out is this. It should be avoided because it's extremely harmful to others even as it is to us. Do you see what he says there? 
that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, in this matter of sexual immorality. That no one, he says, in this area should commit sexual sin because it also doesn't just harm them and dishonor God. It says it also takes advantage of other people and it defrauds other people in that matter. The word defraud means to take what's not rightfully yours, to to steal and take what's not yours and from someone else. So if we're seducing or pressuring or engaging in sexual sin with someone else, we need to realize a part of that error is that we're taking advantage of someone else's weakness. For our own personal satisfaction, we're taking what's not ours and we're robbing something very Personal. If it's adultery, we are robbing the sexual affection that's not ours. We're stealing away something that rightfully belongs to another person due to a marriage commitment. We're robbing our own spouse or we're taking the sexual affection that belongs to another person's spouse. We're defrauding, we're cheating someone. That means as well, if we have sex or someone has sex prior to marriage or outside of marriage, if you sleep with somebody that's not your spouse prior to marriage and you're not married to them yet, the truth of the matter is you may be sleeping with somebody else's future husband. You're robbing somebody else of the virginity of somebody else's wife or spouse. You're sleeping with some, you, That's not your marriage partner. How do you know? Oh, well, we're in love. But it doesn't mean you're going to marry him. And in a sense, the thought should be, I'm sleeping with somebody else's future husband right now. That should cause our hearts to realize that's ripping somebody off. That's hurtful. That's destructive. That's harmful. Not to mention, he says in verse 6 as well, the Lord is the avenger of all such as we forewarned you and testified. So he's saying, look, it also is going to bring severe consequences from the Lord. That's what the Bible's saying here. Hebrews 13, 4 says, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Now how God's going to judge, judge and avenge in the area of guilt because of sexual sin with the corresponding painful consequences and problems that are attached to it, I can't say specifically, but we can't ignore the fact that God says that he will, that there will be painful consequences that there will be problematic things. So Paul says, that's why we're warning you in this area. Be careful, he says. It brings God's displeasure. And committing sexual sin, he says lastly in verse 7 and 8, is to live in rebellion to God's call on your life. He says, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, Paul says, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has also given us his Holy Spirit. So Paul says, look, God called you into a relationship of holiness to live set apart, to live a holy life. That's his plan. So to live in sexual sin in any form, it's never okay. It's never acceptable. It's not God's plan. Paul's saying, verse 8 there as well, that the truth of the matter is, he says, if you reject what I'm saying here, he who rejects this, he says, doesn't reject man, but God. So Paul's saying, look, if you want to argue and disagree with what I'm declaring here, he's telling these Christians, look, he says, you're not rejecting me. As that old, you know, you know, Victorian preacher. Paul says, no, your, your issue is much bigger. He says, you're rejecting God. You're rejecting God and his plan and what he's declared. And for the believer, there's absolutely no excuse. Because look at it, verse 8 there. He says, we're rejecting God who has given us his holy spirit. Notice the word there, holy spirit. And God didn't just give us his holy spirit alone 
to help us to know that we should live holy. But God as a Christian has also given us his Holy Spirit to empower us supernaturally so that we can have victory over sexual sin, that we can have victory in this area and live properly. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you can develop a desire for and the strength to maintain your virginity. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you can refrain in a romantic relationship from sexual activity. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you can be faithful sexually in your marriage to your spouse alone. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you can resist and abstain if you have wrong sexual desires. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can repent this morning from any sexual sin that you might be engaging in. Look, maybe for some of you, the pornography's got to stop. It's got to stop. For some of you, I hope, God forbid, the relationship that you've been engaged in or are starting to pursue, it needs to stop. It needs to stop by the power of the Holy Spirit. It needs to stop and it can today. Don't reject God. Don't reject His voice and the power of His Spirit. He wants to help you. His will is best. And He wants to give you a way of escape. You can escape. And there are better things ahead. Jesus wants to help and deliver. And in this area, listen, hear me before I close. In this area, if you failed, there's grace, man. There's forgiveness. Jesus died for that too. And the blood of Christ can cleanse and give you a fresh start and even heal and restore your life, your marriage. There's forgiveness in Jesus. And if you fail, don't live in that chronic failure. Own it for what it is. Don't reject God's call to you for the way of escape. Repent of it. Return to the Lord. Receive His forgiveness. And then walk in the victory that He intends for you to have. Let's stand together. Let's pray.